You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. What is happening? It's on the You're listening to the AME Radio Show. Welcome, everyone, to the AME Radio Show. I'm your host, Jason Dowd, and I've got a great show in store for you guys this week. We've got a lot of interesting guests, and I want to talk to you about some stuff that I had some observations on in and around town that I think you might find a little interesting. So first, I would invite everybody to go to our website, but not right now, when the show's over, uh, which is www.theamemagazine.com. While you're there, you'll be able to see what the whole AME experience is all about, which is television, radio, and magazine. we got so much stuff up there about the art, music, and entertainment industry. Also, if you're on Facebook, like us there, too. We want, we want fans. We want followers. So go to uh, facebook.com forward slash the AME experience, and if you are on Twitter, Hit us up there, which is twitter.com forward slash Dowd Studios, D-O-W-D Studios. That's my personal Twitter. That is the AME Experiences Twitter, and it is my studio Twitter. Lots of stuff for you guys there as well. And, of course, if you're ever on anything else like Twitter, uh, like Instagram, or anything like that, you can find me just by looking up my name, Jason, D-O-W-D. Okay. So, who do we have coming up this afternoon? We have uh, Bill Sorvino. He is the male lead in the movie Who's Jenna? Who is Jenna? I don't know. We're going to find out. He's going to tell us all about this. Then we also have Laura Enright coming up. She is the author of Chicago's Most Wanted. We're going to be talking gangsters. There is nothing cooler in the United States history with, mo- with crime than the mobsters of the 1920s through the 1940s. Speakeasies, all that stuff. We're going to talk to them, talk to her about them and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So, that's what we have coming up. I hope you guys are going to stick around for that because I know you're going to want to hear it. So, it's been a, it's been a little bit of a week. Um, did you guys find anything that inspired you? Did you go out there and try something new? I hope you did because every time you do and every time you challenge yourself to do something, it's not only fulfilling, but if you don't, fulfill, but if you don't make it or you happen to fail at it, don't get frustrated because there's so many other people that have done this and have gone through the process and it is a process you're going to learn from your failures and when you do you will be just that much better next time you try it now everybody that we have on the show has gone through these trials and these tribulations including myself so when you hear their stories and you hear their how they've managed to do things hopefully they'll inspire you just a little bit give you some type of knowledge give you some type of little insight to help you become the artist you want to be and you know there are so many so many facets to art you have fine arts you have culinary arts you have literary arts you have musical art you have uh, theatrical art you have so much stuff so there's so many things to get out there and try and it's such an amazing experience if you haven't done so so get out there and try something Okay, so now I want to get to something that I saw on Facebook today, which was really cool because it brought back a lot of memories, and it happened to be called 80s Memory, and it had a 
a, a rack at one of those video rental stores full of video games. And I'm like, you know something? That was a great time in my life. I remember coming home Friday nights, and that was one of the things that we would do. Or Saturday morning, we would go to the video rental store and rent a video game or rent a, uh, rent a movie. You know, And I can still remember one of my favorite things was going to the horror section. Now, my mom and dad never let me watch these movies for obvious reasons. You know, I was still young. But the artwork and, and the creativity of all these creatures and stuff like that, it had a profound impact on me. And I, as I got older, I got to watch the movies. But the artwork has always stuck in my head. And you can probably see some of that in my artwork today because I love to incorporate things that I enjoyed growing up and make me who I am. But, you know, I think we've lost so much with the internet today. I mean, it's just so easy to download a download a video game. You go on, you go on um, Xbox and you can buy the video game there. I mean, the days of going to those video rental stores are done. All you can do now is walk up to those little red boxes and that's about it. Um, you have Netflix, which you can, you, you, you can rent something and it comes to you, but you don't get it instantaneously. That was one of the cool things, just going in there, being able to pick out this game or this movie, feeling it, looking at it, reading it, and seeing if it was something of interest to you. And we've, like I said, we've lost that with technology. Although it is more um, instantaneous now and, and it's more on-demand satisfying but it's we've lost something, and I think that's going to be a huge loss to to the kids that are growing up today. And speaking about um, nostalgia, I went into a McDonald's the other day, and you know something? One of the things that I remember growing up was getting out of school and going to those golden arches. You had those, you had the very specific looking countertops. You had those little, those little, um, it looked like I always call them the little professor like um, cash registers. And you saw the big lines of all the of all the the uh, the breads, uh, the the uh, hamburgers and stuff like that. And you had the you saw the big uh, milkshake machine. Well, now you walk in there and they're changing them all over to look like they're from the nineteen nineteen uh, the two thousand sixties. Very futuristic, um, very cold. I, you know, I used to love going into to McDonald's because it was just a warm feeling. Uh, it was a place where you could just join up and hang out with your friends, and now it's just like stale. It's like you go and sit in these square chairs that are very, um, very cold and hard, and they're just not fun to be at. You know, you, get, you got those really high, those really high stool type chairs, and you, you know, I was watching a little kid trying to crawl up on them. We've lost. McDonald's is losing their identity, and they're doing it because they're trying to please the millennials. Um, they uh, their sales have been down for months, and and it's continuing to to plummet more and more. And that's probably because the people that know McDonald's and grew up with McDonald's maybe not the best food to eat, but for health wise, but it was that comfort food, and we've lost that. Um, there's there, there, the taste of it just does not taste the same like it was growing up. Even their fries are pretty good, but they're not as good as they used to be. Um, they went to the all-day breakfast. Now, that was a ritual. You know, you got up in the morning. You had to be there by 1030. I mean, that was like your alarm clock. If you wanted to make it, you had to be there. And now you get it all day. And honestly, it's not as good because they don't, they, they're not constantly making them. So they have to make them for you or they just warm them up. Um they're going to these gourmet burgers. You know, I saw this gourmet food stand where you can go up there and make your own burger. It has mushrooms. It has everything that you could possibly want on it. And it doesn't taste any different than the regular burgers. They just make it look like it's gourmet. They make it look like it's so um, exquisite. 
their prices have been going up because of it too. And you remember the milkshakes? They used to come in those white in their white soda soda um, cups. I mean, it was just a signature. And you would watch it out; it come out all strawberry and all swirled up. It was thick, nice shakes. You know, vanilla chocolate strawberry. And now they got designer shakes and these little itty bitty clear cups. And it looks like you, a milkshake you would go get from um, Starbucks. And what I don't want I went to McDonald's to get a milkshake if I wanted a milkshake from Starbucks and get that feel I would go to Starbucks and the problem is they're doing all these changes to please millennials who are still not showing up and I think they're they're losing their brand and the reason why I bring this up is because we do this so often with our own artwork and our own businesses sometimes we try to fix something to please a certain person only to realize you're not going to help. You're not going to. You're not going to change their minds. Now, granted, everybody around the, the year two thousand, uh, I think it's nineteen eighty one or eighty two, is technically considered a millennial, and uh, you know, so that's a, that's a big group of of people. But you you're losing what made you famous. You're losing everything that people loved about you. The people that are not that don't like McDonald's because they don't think it's the greatest food or they're too concerned about their health or their environment or whatever it may be that they're on their high horse over, they're not going to show up. You're, not, you're still not going to buy them over, and it's not worth pushing everybody away in order to try that do love your stuff in order to please those certain people. And I've learned that in my own artwork too. When I get out there, I'm doing it for myself. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm not going to try to sway people to... to like my stuff that are never going to like my stuff. And I think that's some of the things that we need to learn as artists, as business people, as um, human beings that, you know, we're trying so hard to make people love us, yet the people that aren't loving us now probably never will. So why bother? All you got to do is just go out there and be the best person you can, do the best job you can, and be yourself. Stop changing to please other people. All right, guys, that's my that's my soapbox. I'm getting down from it. I, I'm going to write an article about this on the AME Magazine, so check that out in a little bit. It will be upcoming soon. And now I'm going to go to a quick commercial break. We're going to come back, and we're going to go to our first guest, Bill Sorvino. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The AMFM 24-7 Roku channel broadcasts all of our shows on demand. To ensure reliability, we store and stream our content on the same servers as Netflix and Amazon. Our Roku channel is free to use, and anyone owning one of the more than 10 million Roku devices can watch our channel at no cost whatsoever. If you have a television show or are thinking about producing a show, you can be a part of AMFM 24-7's Roku channel. Watch our great shows on your Roku device. It's free and more reliable than cable TV. Are you stuck with a timeshare? Did you attend the presentation and were seduced and enticed into buying that great vacation and investment? Now you're in the terrible position of trying to figure out a way to get out of that mess. You're not alone. For over 15 years, BuyYourTimeshare.com has been helping people like yourself get out of timeshare ownership. The fact is there is no resale market. Unscrupulous telemarketers call you and say they have buyers waiting, and the next thing that happens is you give them hundreds of dollars for an ad, and you'll never hear from them again. Another fact is that an identical timeshare to yours is being offered on eBay for a dollar, and no one is buying it. If you want out of your timeshare, I urge you to go to buyyourtimeshare.com or call them at 877-94-HELP-ME. 
That number again is 877-94-HELP-ME, buyyourtimeshare.com. That's buyyourtimeshare.com, 877-94-HELP-ME, 877-94-HELP-ME. A teacher holds the power to make a huge difference in the lives of students. D.D. Ritman's new book, Student Teaching, The Inside Scoop from a Master Teacher, will help both new teachers and veteran teachers to be the best teachers they can be, impacting students' lives one day at a time. Available at ddritman.com or amazon.com. Again, that's ddritman.com, D-E-D-E-R-I-T-T-M-A-N.com. This is Vic DiBetetto. You are listening to the AME Radio Show. All right, everybody. I have on the line with me a very special guest and somebody I'm very excited to talk to. His name is Bill Sorvino. He is the male lead in the romantic comedy Who's Jenna, which is just coming out here in a little bit. And I know before, because I said that, everybody's going to want to know who Jenna is. But before we find out who Jenna is, we want to find out who Bill is. So, Bill, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks. So, Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So kind of tell me a little bit how you got into acting. Ah, okay. Well, I, I got into it. I was originally a singer-songwriter for a number of years, and uh, I actually got signed to a small independent record label. And uh, I was, you know, I I, uh, I was a performer at heart, you know, and an artist at heart also. A lot of different, do a lot of different kinds of art and stuff like that. So, um, I uh, something hit me one time. My daughter was born, and uh, something hit me to go into something. I don't know, just. Something more far-reaching, I guess. And um, and acting, you know, and my uncle is Paul Sorvino, and my cousin is Mira Sorvino. So, you know, I was around it my whole life, and so it just kind of uh, it it became it, it hit me one day. I, I, the best I could tell you. And then and then I went I went to uh, William Esker Studio, uh, who my uncle trained with as well, um, in the city in New York City, one of the best acting schools in the world. Can't say enough about them. And, um, you know, since, you know, that was about 10 years ago, uh, that I went to school. And, uh, so I've been acting since then, basically. Now, did you just start out, out, like, doing television or movies, or did you kind of go into, like, the Broadway scene? I did some, uh, I did some plays, some off-Broadway plays, um, at that time, you know, uh, going back in the original the first few years. But I went into, into films right away as well. I did, um, you know, I did a number of short films. Uh, to get started, um, which is always kind of the way. Um, and then um, from there, I got into a few feature films. And and then, you know, as, as your work, your body of work starts to um, accumulate, uh, you know, people start to notice your work, and they want you in the other films. And that, that's how, you know, start to escalate and, and why I was the lead of Who's Jenna, kind of, you know, the, uh, the last piece of what I've been doing. And what's been one of the most challenging things for you as an actor to date? Uh, so, here's the funny thing. Um, it's very challenging to do dramatic, like, serious, heavy dramatic stuff. For instance, I did a, uh, I did a, a short film called Maniac, which won a lot of awards. Um, I won, a, you know, several acting awards for it as well. And it was very dark, very, very dark. It was about a guy whose daughter, you know, dies, a cancer doctor. Of course, I had a daughter who was the same age as this character, the girl. And, um, you know, he goes on kind of like a little bit of a killing rampage, and it's all because of the, the deep, dark despair that goes into. Um, so it was, uh, it was, you know, that was, uh, it was a very difficult few months for me because I, I spent a few months preparing for it, um, and I was just, it psychologically was messing me up because I love my daughter so much, you know, and um, thinking and imagining, oh my God, what if this happened to 
my daughter to prepare for the role. And then for a few months after, I had nightmares um, from doing it because I, I prepared myself so deeply to, to live this, 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 uh, these moments. Um, but what's funny is that um, comedy may be harder. <laughs> and, and I've been doing, yeah, and who gender the comedy? I'm a straight guy, and I'm a straight man in, in this comedy of, of, of errors going on around me. But, but basically, I, uh, uh, I, I'm fine, and I'm doing, uh, like lately I've been doing more comedy, uh, and, and I'm finding that the timing and all of that stuff they always talk about with comedy timing, it's really, it's a lot harder than dramatic. It really is. Yeah, it, I I can see that because you really you really have to have a good timing to to hit it when people are not expecting it because that's really what makes yeah. it funny when you catch them off guard. Yeah, under hundred thousand percent. It's the element of surprise. Yes. Do you enjoy sure, one? So for, so for instance, so for instance, we're, I'm right now I'm going to be shooting this new album. I'm going to be playing Mussolini. They're going to put me in all prosthetics and ball cap and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it's a comic, you know. It's a great, great, great comic called Yellow Scare by uh, written by Sam Patisky and. Um, and it's being directed by Joe Welsky, but it's a great uh, follow-up to another film they did called Red Scare, and um, these guys are really talented guys, and I took on the role, one, because I was going to play like this crazy Mussolini character in a comedy, but two, because it's like, wow, I'm going to really stretch my, my, my comedy wings here um, and see where it goes, you know, and, and I, we, were, we were rehearsing. I had full prosthetic time for the rehearsal because they wanted to try it out, and I was like, I was like, wow, the prosthetics, number one, give you a whole new feel, like you're like you really feel the person. And on top of that, doing this Mussolini comedy act routine thing, you know, it was like, wow, this is this is hard but cool and great. You know, I was watching a show one time and it said um, that when you play another person, you learn something about that person, whether they're a real person or they're not a real person. Do you mm -hmm. actually have you actually found that out in your career or is that just something that maybe it hasn't happened for you yet? Well, it depends on if it's a real life person or or a uh, or just a made up character. So, if it's a made up character, you're gonna learn a lot about, a lot about yourself, which I found that happened, hundred um, percent. You know, in, in all the roles I've played, I had to delve into my own personality and my own either maybe dark corners or bright corners or you know more vulnerable, less vulnerable. You know, uh, all those different pieces of your of yourself that you have to bring into the character to bring it to life. Because if it's a made up, if it's you know, if it's just a uh, an imaginary character in a, in a script. Then you, you need to, you know, between you and the director, you need to come up with the, the best possible um, conveying of this person, you know. And um, and a lot of times you're going to be bringing your own self into it. You learn about yourself from doing that. Now, in terms of Mussolini, I'm finding that I'm healing because I'm making his like his stance and his kind of his facial expressions and, and some of his, uh, you know, some of his, his command of the way he, he carries himself. I'm finding a lot. I am healing. I know this guy's not like. He felt like a ruler, and I don't feel like a ruler. But I'm also playing like in a vulnerable, it's in a funny way. I thought it's kind of cool in both sides of it. But yeah, yeah, definitely, I, that's 100. percent So, what kind of got you into this role as uh, the lead male in this uh, in Who's Jenna, and what kind of attracted you to it? Okay, so it's a interesting story. I, I, you know, Tom uh, Baldinger, the director, a fabulously talented writer director. Um, had, uh, he saw Maniac, the film I just told you about, the, the, the short film with the daughter. Um, he saw that at the Hang On Through Shorts Film Festival in Asbury Park, um, which, um, run by CJ Collins, a friend of mine, great guy. But, um, Tom Bollinger, he, he approached me and said, Bill, I, I want to talk to you about uh, a script I have. 
Um, now, that was a very dark role, so the script that he was originally intending to do was a, is a dark role. And uh, it's, called, it's called Triple Play, and it's, it's a great, um, an amazing drama. I just, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get back to that. But he said that he, he basically wanted me to play the role in that film, because that's what he was planning on doing next. And um, what happened was his investors changed their, their mind, and they wanted to, they wanted to back a romantic comedy first, more maybe a sacred bet, I guess. And uh, and so he approached me and he said, Bill, you know, uh, my investors changed gears. He goes, here's the thing, you know, I have you in mind and someone else in mind for the lead role um, or a supporting role for you. And I said, well, let me read the script, you know. And I and I read the script and I got back to him the next day. I was like, Tom, no, 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 I'm playing the lead role. I don't care what you say. He's like, I all Billy, I not. I'm like, Tom, I'm telling you. This is, I can nail this role. I can hit this thing out of the park for you 100%. I said, I, I get this guy. This guy is very similar to myself. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I'm just not going to take another role. <laughs> He's like, let me talk, let me talk to the investors, the casting director, yada, 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 yada. And, uh, you know, of course he had to answer to whatever he had to answer to. And I understood that and, and I respected that, but I was going to fight for the role. And he's like, you know, I just have to, I said, listen, Tom, I'm just going to give you one thing. You do what you have to do. I understand, but who is making this film? Are you the director writer? Are you the one at the end of the day who has to be happy with the results? I said, that's you. So if you think I'm the right guy, if you don't think I'm the right guy, I'm okay with that. But if you think I'm the right guy, yes, you know, because I know I can do it. And you know it. And he goes, let me get back to you. And the next day he was like, Bill, that's it. I want to sign you up for two films because I want to do triple play after this and this now. So um, we did a contract with both films, and that's basically how it happened. You know, I, I thought you know, I knew I could do it. Yeah. And <clears throat> what has been the best part of your character that you feel is the most um, rewarding of playing it? Great question. I, I, I love that question, actually, because the parts of this guy that I relate to are the moral integrity um, that he has, that he really has to do the right thing. and all the madness that's surrounding him. It's a big, crazy, farcical comedy with crazy things going on. But at the same time, he's saying, you know what, look, I'm not going to let, you know, even though there's circumstances that could make him, you know, let things happen or slide that aren't appropriate or aren't right or really aren't just morally on high ground. He says, no, I'm, I'll risk I'll risk it all to make sure that the, the moral outcome of what's going on here. And that, that's my, my, I personally am like that myself. I, I'll, I'll give it all up if, if morally I, I feel it's wrong. Um, so, yeah, so I, I really, really relate to that part of his character, uh, and I love playing that part of it. And I also like playing the, uh, the comedy end of it, you know, being in the middle of his saniness and, and getting to be like, what, 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 you know, kind of just getting that, I always say it's like, uh, it's like Ben Stiller and something about Mary, like he's just got his vanity running around him and he's just trying to keep, keep, keep himself together at the same time, you know, so that's kind of the way it is. Right. So, what is, uh, Who's Jenna all about? So, Who's Jenna is, you know, can't give away too much, but um, it's about a, a guy who, uh, you know, meets a girl um, who looks, she's a blonde bombshell played by Tracy Birdsall magnificently. She's, you know, great actress and, uh, you know, magnificent in, in the film. But um, he meets her at the bar. She walks in and he's instantly struck. But his best friend, played by Joe, Joe D'Onofrio, who's a great actor as well, um, I've been in films with him as well. Uh, but he, he plays my best friend. He's like, he goes, she looks like, uh, she looks like some porn She looks like somebody. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So I start dating her and we're falling in love and everything. And he's insisting that she looks like a porn star. And I'm like, oh, please stop it already. 
And, uh, you know, there's that, that's what goes on with that end of the story. But then it turns out that my boss, uh, and her is, is her brother-in-law. And that becomes a whole insane, and my boss is crazy. Okay, played by Gary Castori. Played by Gary Castori. It's hysterical. It's, the guy is insanely hysterical. I always tell him, you, you, you're, you're more nuts. I don't know if you're more nuts a person on, t- on the screen, but you're definitely nuts. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you, it, 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 yeah, and, and, it, and it takes, and I have to kind of keep uh, the ship together because things are going real haywire. And then I have a protege played by Edwin Guerrero, who's also a great actor. He's playing my protege, and there's some stuff going down with him and my boss, and I have to keep all these different pieces of parts while maintaining my romance, my romantic, you know, you know with, with my new girlfriend. And you keep that together without, you know, because of all the other stuff, because her brother-in-law is my boss. You know, it, it's legal situation, and she plays a lawyer, so it's it's really a very complicated, convoluted, amazing, funny story. That sounds very awesome. I can't wait to see the movie. Um, yeah. Tell people how they're going to be able to see it, because we've only got about three minutes left. Uh, it, it, the, the premiere is on May 20th in Asbury Park, newsgenesplashback.com. Um, the tickets um, are on sale, actually. Uh, that's the premiere, of the New York, the East Coast premiere. We have one in LA, uh, probably in June as well. And then I'm sure it'll be out in theaters and Netflix and Amazon and all that stuff after that. I, we don't know the details about that yet. And of course, how can anybody find out more about you if they want to, uh, or maybe even cast you for a possible role? Okay, you know, you can cast me, well, BillSorvino.com is my website, and all the social media is at BillSorvino, Twitter, Instagram. If you go on Facebook, BillSorvino. It's it, easily findable. Uh, my my email, Bill Sorvino actor at Gmail. You know, it, it's uh, pretty straightforward. Catch me uh, any which way. But all all my all social media are at Bill Sorvino. Simply. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, sharing this great movie with us, and and your experiences as an actor, because I know your your experiences will help inspire other people trying to get into the same spot where you are today. I hope so. I hope so. That's part of my mission. All right, guys, we are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to be hearing a little bit more music commentary and interviews, so stay tuned. Do you love horror? The strange and unusual fantasy creatures or urban legends? Do you want to step inside a dream or nightmare? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out internationally exhibiting artist Jason Dowd and his award-winning photographic collections by visiting www.imaginationartstudios.com. Get inside his mind and experience his inner weird. <laughs> Hi, I'm Andy Allo, and you're listening to the AME Radio Show. All right, everybody, I have on the line with me a very special guest. Her name is Laura Enright. She is the author of Chicago's Most Wanted, the top ten book of murderous mobsters, midway mobsters, monsters, and windy city oddities and vampires. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Jason? 
Very good. Well, That's quite a title, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I'll tell you what, you got, a t- you got a subject that I've always been fascinated with, and I think I kind of got even more fascinated with it when I went to Chicago for the first time because we stayed at this flat, and it was, um, it was just like 1920s. I mean, you can almost hear and see, you know, the mobsters running up and down the streets with their, with their, um, with their, uh, uh, what are those things called? A uh, Tommy gun, gun and all, yeah, yeah and all those kind of crazy things. So it just brought back a whole bunch of memories for me, and, and I kind of got more interested into it, even finding out that there's a lot of that history right here in the Tampa Bay area where I'm from. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, I guess there would be. I mean, a lot of them went down there. Yeah, and you know, no, we have the, and such. We have this place called Adventure Island down here. And ironically, it's it's what it is. It's a, it's a water park owned by Bush Gardens and the Bush family. And throughout the 1960s and 70s, a lot of mob stuff uh, handlings went down at that same park. And I, I'm like, wow, you know, he, he, you see this place. It's so it's so fun. It's full of water. It's got you know uh, cliff, uh, uh, island music playing all the time, and yeah. everybody's getting wet. You wouldn't expect that type of thing to happen. Yeah, you know, I think, um, wasn't uh, Giancana in that area for a while, too? I mean, I think he frequented that area. And yeah. Capone had a, a home in Florida. Yes, he did. A big mansion in Florida. Uh, so, yeah, there's um, there's a lot, a lot of history in that whole section. <laughs> yes. And, you know, one of the things that happened, it's actually almost the end, it's actually just a few days past the anniversary, was the St. Valentine's Day massacre that happened in Chicago. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you know about that. Um, you know, it's a fascinating story, actually, in our, in of its own, but it's also fascinating in the context of the larger, um, between gangsters and um, the um, Depression, which was coming up. And what's interesting about that is I think it was the last, kind of the last gasp of the, of the Roaring Twenties. Um, it kind of really shocked people. It was so visceral and it was you know you had you had shootouts here and there and people dying in their cars and, and that was bad enough and a lot of times it was um considered retaliatory one gangster killing another and there was something a little i don't want to say sexy but there was something a little um people kind of looked past it because they felt it was just one gangster killing another and, and such but here you had a situation where there really didn't seem to be any reason for this violence all of a sudden. And it was, there was, what was it, seven of them or something? It was a, they were lined against the wall. They were just gunned down. It was so blatant mm-hmm. by um, some people disguised as police that um, I think people were really horrified. I think they were getting a little tired of the whole Roaring Twenties thing and the people shooting at each other. So it was kind of like just this, just this kind of slap in the face. And I think that's when you see... Um, the gangster culture start to really be um, pushed away by the, by the mass public, who at one time kind of winked at it a little. Well, it was kind of uh, the pro- prohibition era that really kind of bred this type of gang gang mob uh, mentality because they were trying to push, you know, the illegal uh, moonshine stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Oh well, you know, it's that's interesting too because you would not. I do not believe, and I, I think a lot of people feel this way too. The um, any 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 of the mobs in the country would be as powerful or as organized. Certainly not Chicago, um, if it weren't for prohibition. Mm-hmm. Prohibition started as um, something people were trying to do as a really good idea because you had a situation where you know, especially women at the time, they were watching their men uh, go to bars and drink their their weak savings away, um, and then they come home drunk and maybe beat the beat the women and such. Um, it was a really bad with drinking, and so the women wanted to um, change this. 
And it was a long time coming prohibition. I mean, this wasn't just something that they decided in one year. This had been fought for for a while. But what ended up happening was it gave, um, because people still wanted alcohol. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't really legislate something like this. It gave the power to the people who are willing to supply the alcohol. And that was the Capones and that was the Lucianos and all, all of them. Um, and what ended up happening was they became almost like, I don't want to say heroes, but kind of like heroes. I mean, Capone really saw himself as a businessman. Mm-hmm. And in some respects, I think it was, I think it was the, the one who prosecuted him um, for the tax evasion when they finally got him, said that if he had been in any other industry, he would be considered a really good CEO. And that's how, um, especially Capone and then prior, before him, Torrio, they really were able to... Um, gel this whole mob together. I mean, they, they, they had peace processes going on prior to that. There were all sorts of um, mobs in Chicago around the city, and they were fighting each other here and there. They were able to make this peace process. They said, there's enough money for everyone to go around. Let's all, you know, let's all chill out here and enjoy the, enjoy the rush, and that's what happened. So if you didn't have prohibition, I, I don't think... Uh, yeah, the mob would be as strong as it is today because that, that influx, that massive influx of money helped them go into other areas like Hollywood and um, the unions and things like that. So um, I, I think you can point very strongly to Prohibition. Mm-hmm. Now, they moved out of Chicago kind of towards the end of it, and I think that's really what kind of – because they really did build uh, Las Vegas. A lot of people don't realize oh, yeah. that, but they really did. Um what was one of the things that kind of pushed them out of Chicago and sent them to the desert? You know what? I don't... To say... They never really went out of Chicago. I mean, there was a brief time when Capone went to Cicero and um, Chicago was trying to clean itself up a little. They, they elected an mayor. Um, and unfortunately, I can't remember his name, but he was... I think it was Beavers or something. And he was a mayor who was really sincerely going to try to, to follow prohibition rules and such. So they kind of sent um, Capone and his gang out to Cicero, but it really, they, they eventually came back, and they, they really had such a, a tight-fisted um, uh, control, not only in Cicero and Chicago, but in northern Illinois, southern Illinois. But then they, they this is how genius it, 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 these people were. I mean, they really were amazingly smart. We think of them only in terms of the, the gunplay and stuff. They saw the possibilities. Um, they were able to see ahead. They were able, to, you know, they, I'm sure at some point toward the end of the Roaring Twenties when it became obvious that Prohibition was going away, they started realizing, well, there goes that money. We're going to need to go somewhere else. So they, they, they were able to jump on these chances, and I think that's one of the things they, they did. They, they spread out their tentacles. I mean, you saw it in, in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sent representatives out to Hollywood to uh, to the studios to to um, convince those people to play along and you know give them mo- the the extortion monies and such. Uh, the the movie studios, the movie theaters. Uh, it, it's it's just a really fascinating story how this it really happened right before um, prohibition, but how this really became a, a huge business. And it, and it, it not only, uh, and Chicago is very much um, the core of it. I mean, you have uh, certainly the mob in, in New York is much older, but there's something about Chicago, and I think it was because Chicago wasn't tied to the, to the mentality of the five families, 
that they were able to be a little more adaptive. Um, and so they were able to do a lot more. And so even, even the um, New York mob is, is um, kind of beholden in a lot of ways to, to what Chicago started and kind of pushed forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went underground, the mob, right after Capone, you know, uh, when they started seeing this change in attitude. And um, suddenly they realized that they weren't, they, they could get popped, basically. I mean, Capone would go around flaunting everything, um, and nobody touched him until they finally got him on this. They found a way to get him on, on the tax evasion, and then suddenly it became, um, they didn't want to be uh, as as obvious as they were. So they kind of went on the ground and a lot of other stuff that was going on. They weren't as bold or, or, or blatant with it. And so that's why you see, you know, right now, it's everywhere. It's 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 kind of interesting. The tentacles are everywhere, from small from small community situations to larger um, business and such. And one of the songs that came out of the seventies that I've always kind of enjoyed a lot, and I don't know how much truth there is to it. It's called "The Night the Chicago Died." Oh, yeah. Is, yeah. is there any truth to that at all? Um, there's, there's a little. I mean, I think it's got the spirit of the the whole. Um, um, the battles on the, the battles on the streets and such. I mean, one of the one of the big jokes they talk about is that uh, what's one of the lines on the east side or the east side of Chicago or something? Well, the east side would be in the lake. That yes. Kind of, so, um, but that's such a small point. But it has that kind of you know, it's it's kind of like um, who redid that? Who redid the Untouchables? The, the Scorsese, I think, redid the Untouchables. Yes. Uh, movie. That, most of that is isn't even accurate. Of course, the the whole story of the Untouchables isn't completely accurate either, because it's based on um, Elliot Ness's version of it. And, and by the time he wrote that, uh, he it started out as a book, and then it went to the TV show, and then it went to the movie. By the time he wrote the book, he was such a bitter man. His life had not gone where you know he had hoped it would. Certainly, that he kind of pumped up a lot of stories. So um, it's kind of like it's kind of like that. It, it's it's um, there's a glamour to it. There's a uh, kind of glamorizing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how how accurate it would be. You know, it's it's amazing how all of this kind of shaped our country, and it's kind of you know the the classic you know romantic gans- gangsters like you're talking about like in the 30s and 40s and stuff like that's kind of gone away but it's kind of given itself a new breed of gangster that they're calling out there and honestly I don't really know if they are gangsters I think they're more of like a I guess you could call them more of a terrorist um what why did they decide to why do you think that we have gotten in the situation where it used to be more business related now it's just about killing and, pro- and territory I think some of it is at one time, um, you know, and not to, it's it's kind of difficult because the Italians are very much tied into that mob thing. That's just the reality of it um, for so long. And um, the outfit, for example, in Chicago it is very it is very Italian heavy, and it would go into Italian neighborhoods. That's historical. That's even from um, Italy itself, where you had you there were three um, three mobs. Basically, strong mobs in, in Italy, and they—that was what they did. They went into the, into the neighborhoods, and they they created a presence that um, gave everybody uh, um, a sense of of like security. But as long as you played their game, and they brought that—you know—that kind of 
operation to America. It's not the American mob is is not that closely akin to the uh, Italian mob. It's its own entity. But um, at one time, it was very much community uh, orientated. Believe it or not, um, and I think it, that's why you had a guy who could go to um, church on a Sunday morning and then that afternoon whack a person, and he didn't see it in his mind as anything odd. He's, he thought it was just business, but it was still, you know, there's still that sense of normalcy there. What you have now is other ethnicities coming in. From they're, they're bringing in their their version of the mob because the, the, the mob mentality is all all over America, um, the world. Yeah. Every place has. I mean, even you know, it, there's the the Bollywood in India is very. Uh, there's a lot of mob activity, Indian mob activity in Bollywood, just like there was in Hollywood at one time. Um, so it's all over them. So they they bring you know the, the yakuza and uh, other um, the Russian mob and such. They they came here, and I think the Italian mob is starting to see its power wane in the face of all these other mobs, where at one time they were a lot stronger. Um, there's a different way of doing things. There's a different mentality of doing things between the two cultures, the two ethnicities, or the, the various ethnicities. So, I mean, it could be, that could be one reason. They, a lot of the old masters are gone, and they were the ones who kept kept control. I mean, you, Capone is gone, of course. <laughs> uh, Giancana, Accarta. Um, all these mobsters kept a level of control. They 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 were the ones who said, "We'll we'll go this far. That's it." Um, I think I think it was Cardo who said he didn't want to do drugs. One of them said that they, he didn't want to deal in drugs. Well, you know, once he lost his control, then they started dealing in drugs. Pardon me. So that's kind of how it goes. I mean, the, the the old guard is gone, and it's a new it's a new guard, and they're getting a little desperate. I think I don't think they have the talent. For um, for this sort of thing to mix business and I guess you'd call the violence um, that the old guard did, and to mix it in such a way that it, it wasn't as blatant. Right. So, what kind of brought you into writing your book? Well, this book was started because actually, surprisingly, um, I was looking. I, I've always been interested in fiction writing, but it's hard to break into. I had a friend who wrote um, a, a couple books for this for this publisher. It's called the Most Wanted series, and a lot of publishers will have signature series like the Dummies, Dummies Guy or the Idiot's Guide and the Dummies books and such. This is the Most Wanted series. They were doing a lot of um, war and, and sports and stuff. And my friend wrote uh, Baseball's Most Wanted, and he wrote Rock and Roll's Most Wanted, and he suggested well, to get my foot in the door. This is 10 years ago or so. To get my foot in the door, why not try a nonfiction book? So that's what I decided. I chose Chicago. Um, the book is actually the book covers some um, mobs and it covers it covers some of the uh, crime, but it covers also music and politics and sports and things. It's got forty five chapters, each devoted to ten items and devoted to a different topic. Um, and so that's why I kind of went into um, I tried that, and it was it was a lot of fun to do. I mean, it's, you know, you grow up in this around this area. <clears throat> and you don't, sometimes you don't realize, you hear these stories a lot and you don't realize what's behind them. Or maybe if you dig a little deeper, you, you find yourself looking at the situation differently. Um, I mean, to, to get out of the um, the crime element for a second, uh, the the whole story with Mrs. O'Leary and her cow, if you remember that, where yes. Mrs. O'Leary milking her cow at night with 
claimed to be what would cause the fire um, in uh, the late 1800s. What it ends up happening is she wasn't even in the barn that night. Um, and in fact, neighbors at an inquest testified that she had to be woken up because the barn was on fire. Um, it did, the fire did start from the barn, but the, the family was sleeping. But what ended up happening was two um, reporters from the Tribune, I believe it was, saw some broken uh, glass from a lamp and in their own minds, put two and two together, and then created the story that this woman was out milking a cow at, at 2 a.m. in the morning. She had to get up to do to do uh, dairy delivery, so why she would be up doing that at 2 a.m., I don't know. But um, they, she was exonerated, and I think it was in 1995. But after that happened, after the fire, she was terrified that she was going to be expected to pay this money back that was lost that night. Um, I think it was like, it was some insane amount, 300000 for the time, um, $300,000 in damages or something. I, I, there were three um, uh, insurance companies that went bust because of this. She was terrified of this. And um, so after this happened, she became kind of a recluse. And the next thing you know, you, when she died, her family was insisting at the wake, when people were asking about it, that she wasn't that Catherine O'Leary. They were saying that she was another Catherine O'Leary um, because they just anything to do with that with that night just haunted her. I never stopped to think about that. What that must have been like because I've seen these images, you know, the cutesy images about the woman milking the cow. It became kind of a staple of Chicago. Um, I never thought of what it must have been like for her to be going through the Sears catalog, and they had some ad in there for you know uh, for something, and they used her as a represent- representation with the cow, or to go and see a postcard of her with a cow, or you know somebody who's supposed to be her with a cow. What that must have been like for her. Mm-hmm. And so when I was reading, because I wanted to put her in the book, when I was reading about that, it really just it just stunned me out of. Um, some of the stuff you learn when you really, really dig. Yeah. Um, your book, does that go into any type of paranormal stuff? I'm sorry? Do you go into any paranormal stuff in, in your book, too? Because Chicago do does have, have a pretty um, good stuff. There is a chapter on ghosts, which is which was uh, a lot of fun to do. Um, one of the greatest, one of the, I, and <laughs> it's, it, to me it's a fun story. Um, there's the story of, you know, John Dillinger was killed at the Biograph Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he was he was sold. They say he was sold out by the woman in in uh, red. She was, I think, she was actually wearing an orange dress. Um, this woman was a Polish immigrant. She ran a whorehouse that he would stay in. Uh, she was actually friends with him, and she was approached by Melvin Purvis, an FBI agent, and said, "You know, would you mind? Uh, would you mind?" <laughs> he was a little more forceful than that. He said, "Look." We don't know what Dillinger looks like because he's recently had plastic surgery. You need to point him out to us. If you do this, we won't deport you. Um, and so she agreed to do this. And so when they were coming out of the movie, she pointed him out. They ordered him to halt, you know, to, to freeze. He ran down the alley on the side of the biograph, and then they shot him. Um, and Dillinger at that point had become, because he was he was robbing banks, and banks were considered you know, the scum of the earth during the Depression. Um, He was considered a hero, so people were actually dipping their handkerchiefs in his blood uh, because of this. There had always been this this 
kind of legend that uh, the body that went back to the morgue wasn't actually um, Dillinger's. There's a theory that he had different color eyes. Um, that I think it was he had a he had a rheumatic heart condition, mm-hmm. but the body didn't show any signs of that, or vice versa. It was one of those. So the the theory is that that, that wasn't Dillinger's body that went went to the morgue. How true that is, I don't know. But the the story with the biograph is that if you go down that alley, sometimes you can see somebody run and then stop as if they're shot and fall to the ground and then disappear, uh, which is, you know, creepy enough. But I was going through some of the some of the research, and somebody posed a theory, one of the local authors, um, I think his name was Jay Nash, posed a theory that what happened was there was a guy, there was a, a low-status um, criminal in the neighborhood who looked a lot like Dillinger, who could pass for Dillinger um, after his plastic surgery. And so what ended up happening was the woman in red actually convinced this guy to go to the movies with her one night and pointed the guy out. And um, he was, like, you know, a victim of circumstances. He knew nothing of this was going on. And so actually the the ghost of the guy you see running is, is um, this innocent bystander, and Dillinger got away scot-free. So I always find that if that were the case, and I don't know if that were the case, if that were the case, to me that's even creepier than to think that Dillinger's running down the alley is that this poor guy who just went to on a date to a movie um, was uh, shot dead, not knowing even why he was shot dead. Wow. Yeah, so that's <laughs> some fun <laughs> stuff. There's still a lot of fun stuff. And, uh, you know, it's an old city. It's had a lot of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, the Eastland disaster, uh, there's a number of stories about haunts from that. And if you, in fact, I use this in one of the vampire novels. Um, if you look over the edge of the, um, one of the, one of the, um, River, the, the the bridges that that are over the river. Supposedly, you're supposed to be able to see sometimes the faces of those who uh, who drowned because they because a lot of the bodies they had to put up nets because of a lot of a lot of the bodies were going down to the river. They had to put up nets to catch these bodies for like 800 people. I mean, it wiped out whole um, town or like a whole town uh, of people on that uh, ship. Um, so these, um, so some supposedly you're supposed to be able to see the ghosts of the ghostly faces of people floating in the river. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it's one of those things where I'd almost like to try it, but then I think I'd be scared to do it. Be <laughs> <laughs> scared to actually see something. <laughs> well, we got about two minutes left, so tell everybody how they can find your book and how they can find out more about you. Okay, well, um, the, all my books are available on Amazon. If you want to go to uh, my website, it's Um you you can find uh, links to the books, and you can find more about me. You can check me out on my Facebook page, um, Laura and Wright. <laughs> and um, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm all sorts uh, all sorts of social medias, but probably my website is probably the best way to to find me. Laura-Enright.com Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your books and sharing these experiences. I love talking gangsters. Oh, yeah, it's fun, isn't it? It is. (laughs) We shouldn't have that much fun talking about the violence, but it is kind of fun. (laughs) It is. All right, well, thanks for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for coming on. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, guys, we are going to go to a commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to hear more music, commentary, and interviews, so stay tuned. Do you love... 
the strange and unusual fantasy creatures or urban legends. Do you want to step inside a dream or nightmare? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out internationally exhibiting artist Jason Dowd and his award-winning photographic collections by visiting www.imaginationartstudios.com. Get inside his mind and experience his inner weird. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, everybody. Uh, we got just a few minutes left, but we're going to continue on with the nostalgia theme, if you haven't realized that already, uh, with music. Now, we talked about gangsters and, uh, and authors. We talked about McDonald's. We talked about video uh, rental stores. Well, this one happens to be something powerful for me that I'm going to be playing. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it here in just a second. But the reason why we went nostalgia this week is because sometimes looking back at the better times in our lives or the simpler times helps us relax, and it can allow us to then grow some creativity in our heads, inspire us, and just help us get back to reality. And sometimes that's very important because uh, we forget who we are. And if you're trying to do something, whether it be art, whether it be a business, whether it be just general life, we have to be ourselves. We have to be true to ourselves and remember where we came from. That's what this is all about. So this particular song was very, 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 very important for me because I heard it through the radio, didn't realize it was on a movie until later. Now, I went looking for it because it happened to be by one of my favorite bands on all their C- on all their tapes at the time. Excuse me. The CDs were brand new and very expensive. Um, this is 1988, and um, I went looking for it and looking for it and looking for it. I could never find it. Finally, the soundtrack to the movie came out. It was Cocktail. Probably know where I'm going with this. It was the Beach Boys' Kokomo. The, every time I hear that song, it just brings me back to such a great time in my life. Um, the memories that just play through my head are just amazing. And I hope but that by hearing this song, too, it will do the same thing for you, especially if you're around during that time in, uh, in our history. And um, I don't, I'm glad to say I still have that tape. Uh, it's, it's in a very protected spot. But now I have it on DVD, I have it on CD now, and I don't actually have the cocktail uh, album, I have the Beach Boy album. But right now, we're going to go to Kokomo. I hope you get inspired. I hope you go out and dig out some old songs that will help you feel the same way if this one doesn't do it for you. And after the song, we'll be right back to close it out, so don't go anywhere, guys. We'll be right back. Aruba, Jamaica, ooh, I want to take you Bermuda, Bahama, There's a place called Kokomo That's where you wanna go To get away from it all Bodies in the sand Tropical drink melting in your hand We'll be falling in love To the rhythm of a steel drum band Down in Kokomo Ooh, I wanna take you through Bermuda, Bahama, come on, pretty 
That was Kokomo, and if you don't know, that's the place where you want to go, right? Anyways, it makes me want to go back on vacation. I love that song. Um, I love the sound. I love everything about that. And like I said, it brought me back to a a strange time in my life because so many things happened when that song came out. I actually had a severely broken bone. Uh, My grandmother had a heart attack. I mean, just a lot of bad things. But then there's a lot of great things that happened too because despite the fact that I had a broken arm, I went out and competed for my third degree uh, brown belt. And after that, they brought out a black belt with my name on it because I achieved it. And I did it with one arm. I fought with one arm. So it's amazing what you can do with just a little bit of inspiration and passion behind it. All right, guys. It is almost the end of the show. So I want to be able to tell everybody how you can find us. Uh, go to www.amfm247. We're there every Saturday night, 5 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, and on all their AMFM stations across the United States. Go check your local listings for that. We're also on Friday at noon on WKLAP Internet, uh, strictly Internet radio station, and iHeartRadio, one of the largest platforms in the United States. All you have to do is go to AM, uh, AME Radio Show in the search, and you will find us. Also, we want you to check out our art, which is at www 
www.imaginationartstudios.com. You can see all the great stuff that I have been putting out, the things I have coming up. And if you want to be a part of it and you're in the Tampa Bay area, let me know because that's what we're here to do. And if you are an artist or a uh, any type of artist and you want to be on our show, hit us up there as well uh, on AMFM2, I'm sorry, the AMEmagazine.com. Until then, next week, guys, we will be right back. Same time, same channel. Don't go anywhere. We want to see you back next week. All right, Jason, out. That's the end. We're done. Calm down, people. Calm down. Okay, that's it.